Before we have the reading of Scripture, let us receive the instruction from the Shorter Catechism regarding the Seventh Commandment. We'll read responsively. What does the Seventh Commandment require? The Seventh Commandment requires us and everyone else to keep sexually pure in heart, speech, and action. What does the Seventh Commandment forbid? The Seventh Commandment forbids thinking, saying, or doing anything sexually impure. Let us pray. Gracious God, your law is good and is for our good. And we give you thanks that you have revealed your goodness to us. We pray now for the blessing of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds. We pray, our Father, that by your Spirit you would convict, convert, consecrate us more fully to live as your holy people upon the earth. And we thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The reading of Scripture this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 19, beginning at verse 3. Let us hear the Word of God, it is written. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Have you ever been to the doctor's office for a little procedure? And your doctor says, now, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Or this might hurt a little bit. And we all know what that means. It means that it is going to hurt. But we all also know that our good doctor does not intend to hurt us, and that he or she takes no pleasure in causing our discomfort. I find myself somewhat in the position of the good doctor this morning, and I do not intend to hurt any one of you this morning as we consider Jesus' teaching on divorce, though indeed this may be a little uncomfortable. Almost everybody here today 
has had his or her life touched in some way by divorce. It might have been your parents' divorce or your grandparents, one of your siblings, one of your children, or your own divorce. Almost everybody here today, including myself, has in some way been touched by divorce. And so at some level, there is a degree of sympathy or empathy, which we all can share as we uncomfortably probe the wound. Those of you who have been divorced and have since joined Covenant know that when you came to my office to discuss joining the church, your divorce was not part of that conversation at all unless you brought it up. My point is this. We welcome divorced persons into our membership just as we admit everyone into our membership upon their acknowledgement that they are sinners whose only hope is in the sovereign mercy of God freely offered in Jesus Christ and received through faith in Him alone. We accept everyone's confession of sin, profession of faith in Christ as Savior, and expressed commitment to live as his disciple as the basis for church membership and fellowship from that point forward. The membership vows are the same for us all, and divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But you may be wondering why in a sermon on the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, I'm preaching a sermon focused on divorce, and here's the reason. As Pastor Jonathan powerfully pointed out last Sunday, if you were not here, if you haven't downloaded it, you must and listen. The seventh commandment protects and promotes the sanctity of and the blessing of human sexuality within the covenant of marriage, one man, one woman. So the big idea of the seventh commandment is to protect marriage and the family for the glory of God. And under that big idea today, we are addressing one of the most common assaults on marriage, namely divorce, which Jesus in his teaching goes on to connect with, in some cases, adultery. Now, the passage from Matthew 19 records Jesus' answer to a question asked by the Pharisees, and we need to understand that it was a test, a trap question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It was a test trap question because in the first century, in first century Judaism, there were two schools of thought among the rabbis who disagreed about a divorce law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. One interpretation was that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any indecency, meaning any unpleasantry, if, if she found no favor in his eyes, such as not being a very good cook. If he wanted to, he could simply write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Now, the other school of thought interpreted the word indecency more strictly. 
probably applying it to some kind of sexual offense, a sexual offense even less than adultery. But, but the, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus so that they could one way or the other accuse him of contradicting Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy 24. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus clearly rejected the notion that a man could divorce his wife for reasons of disfavor, as though divorce were an option if the man decided he didn't want to be married to her anymore. Jesus clearly rejected that. He rejected it because it's contrary to God's will. But also, note this, by rejecting the idea of divorce as an option for the unhappy man, Jesus was protecting the women of his day. Jesus' answer protected the women in first century Judaism from being discarded by arbitrary and capricious divorce. That's worth noting. Certainly has relevance for our culture today when so many divorces are based simply upon discontentment or dissatisfaction. Jesus' response to their question also put the whole issue into a bigger, broader, better perspective. Did you see that Jesus' response went back to the Garden of Eden and focuses on God's original design and intention for marriage? It's like he's saying to those Pharisees, have you missed the whole point? Jesus asked them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? And then Jesus added, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus said that. Jesus focused on the fact that God ordained and instituted marriage to be a union until separation by death. That's the issue. Divorce violates the God-ordained one-flesh union of husband and wife, which was instituted by God in the very beginning. That's the real issue. Divorce is an offense to God because it is an assault on marriage which God ordained and instituted to be very good for us and for our children. That's the issue, and that is the reason that the prophet Malachi proclaimed the word of the Lord, speaking his word, saying, Thus says the Lord, I hate divorce. But the Pharisees weren't satisfied. They came back at Jesus again, arguing the point trying to find some justification, you know how that is, asking why Moses had commanded them to write a certificate of divorce. Well, first of all, Moses didn't command divorce. He allowed it. And why did Moses allow it? Jesus said that Moses allowed it only because of the hardness of heart in fallen humanity. The law in Deuteronomy 24 allowing for divorce did not provide any justification for divorce. Rather, it actually proved the sinfulness, the hardness of heart involved in divorce. It pointed out the failure of people to honor God in their marriage. And then Jesus added, 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus affirmed the indissoluble union of the one flesh covenant, unless that union is broken by sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians added abandonment, desertion. But we'll stay with the text here. Jesus said that unless the marriage covenant has been broken by sexual infidelity, therefore to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery because the original marriage covenant is still intact in the eyes of God. I don't need to tell you that Jesus' words confront our culture with a force of a terrible head-on collision. We live in a culture in which divorce for any reason or for no reason is a very viable and normalized option. So we need to understand the culture in which we've grown up and in which we now live. It's not a pro-marriage culture, and it hadn't been. For most of our lives, it hadn't been. And we all have suffered. We all have suffered. Over the last 50 to 60 years, a perfect storm, a perfect storm of cultural influences has all but washed away the foundations of a marriage in America. To the extent now that marriage has now been legally redefined, we don't even know what it is or what it isn't anymore. How did we get here? Well, for the sake of time, this might be a little bit of an overgeneralization, but I think you'll get the point. How did we get here? Well, how about let's start in the 60s with drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Not exactly a great foundation for marriage for us baby boomers. The pill didn't really help since what the pill promised was sex without children, meaning sex without commitment. Again, not a great perspective to bring into a marriage. The legalization of abortion amplified that effect. Feminism decried the prison of marriage. And then came the mid to late 70s, when I came of age, the me generation, the therapeutic generation, the self-fulfillment generation, the self-actualization generation. And with that came a very significant cultural shift which is still with us today, and it is this. Now, marriage is all about me. It's about me and my personal happiness, my personal fulfillment, my personal journey through life. As Timothy Keller has written in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, I highly recommend it. Quote, marriage used to be a public institution for the common good. And now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it is about me. End quote. 
And if marriage is about me and my happiness, and if I'm not happy, then don't I have the right to pursue my happiness elsewhere? Now contrast that with the statement on marriage from the Westminster Confession of Faith, our historic doctrinal standard. Marriage is designed for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the safeguarding and undergirding and development of their moral and spiritual character, for the propagation of children and the rearing of them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But now that marriage is no longer about commitment to the well-being of the spouse, nor about the spiritual growth and maturity of the spouse as well as oneself in the context of marriage, nor about the bearing and raising of children as disciples of Jesus Christ, now that marriage is viewed as the idealistic quest for endless romantic self-fulfillment, marriage in our culture is set up for failure and divorce is the option. This self-centered, self-fulfillment view of marriage has placed impossible pressure on marriage. This view of marriage demands and absolutely requires that each of us marry the perfect person who will perfectly fulfill all our needs, and supply us with perfect and endless happiness in order to guarantee our self-fulfillment and meaning in life. In other words, as Tim Keller says, we look to sex and romance to give us what we used to get from faith in God. You see, our contemporaries... Cultures, our contemporary culture's view of marriage has turned the spouse into an idol, a false god who is doomed to disappoint you. I remember when eHarmony came on the scene to help single people find their true soulmate by matching up compatible personality profiles. And I know that some people, maybe some of you, have, have found spouses through that process. And, and, and yes, personality profiles are helpful in premarital counseling, and that's all good. But I remember thinking about the unintended consequences of those commercials. The unhappy wife and the bored husband who watched those commercials and said to themselves, he's not my soulmate. She's not compatible with me. And this explains it. The personality profiles prove it. My true soulmate is still somewhere out there. And I'm married the wrong person. Well, no. Your true soulmate, husband and wife, your true soulmate is not out there somewhere. He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
with nail scars in his glorified hands. But yes, as a matter of fact, you did marry the wrong person. Because the person whom you thought you were marrying on the day of your wedding really does not exist and never did except as a figment of your romantic imagination. Now, I don't mean that to be a negative downer. I mean it to be a statement of realism which can set you free from the illusion that a perfect spouse can make you perfectly happy. The reality is that we all are broken, imperfect people with a sinful nature which still infects us. The worst thing we can do is to place impossible expectations on our spouse to make us perfectly happy. Again, that is idolatry doomed to disappoint. And it also misses the point that I myself am an imperfect person infected by sin. And it also misses the point that I myself am a great contributor to my own unhappiness. Catherine and I look forward to celebrating our 40th anniversary in December. Thanks be to God. But she doesn't mind my saying from this pulpit that our marriage has not always been wine and roses and perfect marital bliss. We'd like you to know better than that. We know that marriage is difficult. But God's grace is sufficient. Taking up your cross and denying yourself in marriage is difficult, but Christ is is worth it. And we all need a commitment of a conviction about marriage as the God-ordained covenant union of a man and a woman until separated by death. And if you've, if you've never consciously laid that conviction as the foundation of your marriage, I urge you, lay that foundation now the conviction of an indissoluble union. Lay that foundation now. Because the perfect storm which washes away marriage still rages today stronger than ever. And oh, by the way, there's one more factor. Well, there's two. Of course, we have the the scourge of pornography. There's another factor I wanted to mention which has undermined marriage for the last 50 years. The Protestant church. That's right. The mainline Protestant church. It might be somewhat of an overgeneralization. I don't mean every single church, but I mean as an institution in in our culture, the mainline Protestant church and its leadership basically caved to the culture and the normalization of divorce. Again, it may be an overgeneralization, but I'll just ask you, in your observation, in your observation, when divorces occurred in mainline Protestant churches over the last 50 years, what was the response of the church? That's right. Nothing. Maybe 
Oh, well. An elder might decide that he wants to leave his wife, but keeps right on serving on the session as if nothing ever happened. Oh, well. A wife decides she's done and gone without any possibility of reconciliation, without ever seeking counsel from a pastor or a Christian counselor. Oh, well. A man decides he's going to trade in for a new model and remain a member of the church in good standing. Oh, well. Without any spiritual oversight or spiritual accountability or church discipline. And so over the last 50 years, by ignoring the teaching of Jesus, the mainline Protestant church has contributed to the normalization of divorce in America. That's not the kind of church we want to be. Because that's not being faithful to God's Word. And that's not being faithful to Jesus. And that's not Christian love toward either the husband or the wife or their children. It's not Christian love toward the wife or the husband who's been rejected and discarded. It's not Christian love toward the wife or the husband who's making shipwreck of their soul. Spiritual oversight, spiritual accountability, and church discipline in cases of marital difficulty and divorce are expressions of Christian love, Christ's love for both the husband and the wife. And of course, these matters must be handled sensitively, discreetly, gently, with wisdom, a lot of humility, and with the goal of reconciliation. But marriage difficulties and divorces must be addressed in the life of the church, or else we're no different from the world. Pray for your pastors and your elders and for all the marriages of this congregation. Now, there's so much more that we don't have time for, so let me conclude with some words of encouragement. First, do everything you can. Start today. Everything you can to promote, protect, enrich your marriage. Hugs and kisses before you leave the house in the morning. Hugs and kisses first thing when you get home in the evening. Date nights on a regular basis. Love notes. Time set aside with no distractions just to talk. Put another log on the fire and keep it burning. Don't pick fights with one another. And forgive one another. Second, get the help you need now. Marriage is difficult. And there's no shame in having marriage difficulties. Join the club. The, 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 the shame is in not getting help when you need it. Get help sooner than later. Third, and this is the one you've been waiting on. So what do I do now? I'm divorced. I didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. I was actually the guilty offending party in my divorce. And now I'm remarried. What do I do? 
Well, you do the exact same thing that I need to do when I realize, and I have, that I can't turn back the hands of time. And I can't undo what I have done. And I can't call back a bad bullet. And I can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. And I can't unscramble the egg. And I also don't have any explanation or excuse that could cover it. You go to Jesus. You go to Jesus with a broken heart and empty hands. And you tell Jesus that you're sorry. You tell him that you're sorry that you dishonored him and disobeyed him by breaking your marriage covenant and for all the hurt that came with it. You ask him to forgive you without making any excuses or offering any explanation. You just ask him to forgive you. And if you ask him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, he will forgive you. He's already died for you. Why would he withhold forgiveness, which he's already purchased for you with his own blood? Accept his forgiveness. Embrace his forgiveness. Give thanks for his forgiveness. And follow him from now forward. And I know that that has already happened, that that it is true, that it's wonderfully true for some of you here this morning. And, and, and because of the unfathomable mercies of God, your life and your marriage today is a testimony to the wonder-working, redeeming, restoring grace of God through Jesus Christ who died and rose again for sinners such as you and I to make all things new.
If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at your mercies, your grace. We humble ourselves under your truth. We put our hands over our mouths and receive your word. And we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church throughout history and throughout the world in the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sinned.